Your Second Act, the podcast that proves that life doesn't have to end at 40 or 50 or even 60, because when it comes to living your best life, age is just a number. Hey everyone, I'm your host Michelle and welcome back to another episode of Your Second Act. You know those friends you lose touch with and then your paths cross again and it's like no time has passed at all? Well today I had the pleasure of catching up with Lisa, my old flatmate. This episode is particularly special because it allowed me to dive into what's happening in her world since our last chat 15 years ago and let me tell you a lot has happened. I've always appreciated realness and openness, and in this episode, Lisa doesn't hold back. We get to explore how she's navigating her second act, and I'm thrilled to say it's much happier place than her first. But before we dive in, I do want to provide a trigger warning, as we'll touch on sensitive topics such as domestic violence and child abuse. So sit back and join me as I delve into her journey. Welcome to Lisa's second act. Hey there, Lisa. Welcome to your second act. It's crazy to think about those good old days in our 20s when we were young flatmates trying to figure out our careers and our dreadful love lives all crammed (laughs) under one roof. Seriously, the stories from back then could fill another episode of their own. That's for sure. Yes, but we won't be airing that episode, will we? (laughs) No, yeah, probably not. Um, But reconnecting with you after all these years has been really lovely and it's incredible to see how much you've grown and changed from the Lisa I remember and over the last couple of decades you've been on quite the journey and today I'm really excited to dive into your inspiring second act so welcome thank you and thanks for having me it's um yeah it does seem like a million years ago we were flatmates back in uh back in Sydney, but it also feels like yesterday as well when, you know, when I hear your voice, it's just like we're yeah. sitting back in that lounge room. Yeah, on that beautiful floral lounge that we did beautiful. get that yeah. beautiful floral lounge. It was the so fertile, damn ugly. The fertile fourth-hand floral couch that we had. And God knows how old that was. Yes, and then the other two-seater that used to fall apart when people would sit on it yeah it was quite an amusing little setup we had in our apartment but I just remember it was for me that was really exciting because that was my new stage I guess in my first act you know moving away from my my marriage and starting in a new city and you know you had a lot to do with me coming out of my shell and transitioning so it's kind of weird that I'm now interviewing you about this new transition in our second act so like can you tell me how do you feel about yourself now compared to say when you were younger um look I think this you know this part of of my life has been you know it's not hasn't been an easy transition I want to say I turned 50 last year um and I think, you know, I always knew on a cognitive level that ageing is something that's inevitable. I I didn't, what I didn't anticipate though was that it would happen so quickly. Um, And I didn't really, I didn't really understand that it would feel quite so brutal because, you know, we still feel that well, like we're the same person on the inside as we were back then. But um, so much has changed I guess, in the context of our lives, but also in the in the context of our skin, you know, um, we we see outwardly our bodies and our faces changing drastically, but we still feel like the same people on the inside. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, you know, as someone who in my younger years had always struggled with my sense of self and my self-esteem, I think being this age is somehow freeing um, in a way, um, it, it allows me to focus less on my, on my outside and focus more on what's happening internally for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, of course you look in the mirror and you think, oh, it, it, because it's such a great thing, it's not a shock, obviously, but I think it's looking at those photos from when we were younger and then realizing, wow, yes, I have aged. But I think I had a guest who was on once and said, but those lines that we have on our face, it's wisdom, it's the fact that we've experienced different 
different stages of our lives, which I think we are so blessed to have had. Um, some people don't even have the luxury to get to this age. So yeah. I like what you said. It's like really focusing on the inside of you, what you essentially are is is so important. But I, I remember, you know, I, I touched on the fact that we went through nightmare relationships, but especially <laughs> you, I found that you you did make some some bad choices. And I think, like you said, it, it had a lot to do with your self-esteem. And why do you think that was? Um, look, I don't know. And it's it's these are the questions that, you know, I lie in bed at 3 a.m. and and go through my head that the choices that that I've made um as a younger woman. And I, I think a large part of it was, I guess, me working in such a male-dominated career. Um, the police force is very male-dominated. Well, it was then. It, it was then back in the 90s. And there was and and there was things that happened in the police force back then that would never happen now. Um, and, you know, as a woman in the police force in those days, your relevance is really tied to two things. It's your level of competency as a as a police officer, but also the way you look. Um, yeah, but I can't understand that, really. The way you look had yeah. relevance? Oh, huge relevance, huge relevance. And... You know, I I didn't notice it at the time. It was just, but but now looking back in the culture that existed then, it was, you know, if you were good at your job, um, and you looked a certain way as a woman, then the opportunities that were presented to you were vastly different from someone who may not may not look the same. And it's it's awful. It's it was an awful culture. Um, which all played into my sense of self. And um, I, I think coming out of some long-term relationships where I had planned my future, um, the second the second long-term relationship that ended for me was a shock. And so I was left thinking, um, I think I was 28, right, which now is so young. Yeah. Um, but I was very much, well, I've had my future planned with that person and that's been taken away from me I better hurry up and and someone came along who offered me all of those things very quickly which I now know is indicative of uh, um, and one of the precursors to things like domestic violence is a relationship that that proceeds very very quickly and happens very very is intimate and um, and committed very very quickly Um, and I jumped into that unfortunately. Yeah. And I remember you saying to me when we last spoke that you were obviously like most of most women are, are so against any form of domestic violence. And you yeah. said, could you ever have imagined me putting up with something like that? And no, I never, yeah. ever would have. But when you're in it, it's completely different to me having an opinion of listening to someone else's story. And yeah. of course, you know, you had young children. It, it is. It must have been dreadful for you. Look, it was, and it was something that happened gradually, um, and it it is something that I never thought. You know, I with my background and and my career, it was always I always had the view that if anyone ever did anything like that to me, that only you know, or they'll only do it once. But when yeah. you're when you're in a marriage and you have two two small children, um, your your reality and your perception is quite different than um, someone outside of those circumstances. And I think that in the end, I I left the marriage. I was forced to leave the marriage, and um, you know, I I there's a pervasive sense of guilt still that I carry for leaving that marriage, irrespective of the circumstances. Um, you know, I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So I I left a marriage with two small children and took them away from their father. Um, and, you know, that guilt is something that I still carry to this day, um, even though they have a wonderful father now. Um, it's, it, it wasn't it wasn't easy it wasn't pleasant um but it has made me as a person a lot more relatable to 
understanding things like domestic violence. Um, and I, yeah, I still, I still feel quite strongly about as a society, you know, we're very open about mental health. We're very understanding about mental health. We've got a long way to go in terms of the conversation around domestic violence. Do you think people still find it really uncomfortable to discuss that because it's such a personal issue? Yeah, 100%. It's personal, but there's also a taboo attached to it, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, the the taboo that used to be attached to things like mental health yeah. um, has thankfully been removed, yeah. um, but I don't think that it has gone um all the way that it needs to in relation to domestic violence. It's still, it's still, for want of a better word, quite a shameful thing um, for someone to admit that they've um, put up with that type of yeah. um, treatment to any level. Um, yeah. And there's judgment as well, isn't there? That's what you course. don't want. Because of I course. was shocked when you told me because I, I know the type of person you are and I would never have thought that you would ever have put up with something like that. But you can't. You can't pass judgment because we no. don't know how we're going to act in those situations. And, of course, you had two young children. Yeah. And you want to save a marriage. You want to believe that it's forever. You you kind of want that Disney fairy tale, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a- apart from anything else, the thought of leaving a marriage like that financially and yes. um and as a woman with two small children, how am I going to cope? How how am I going to, where am I? It's the, the practicalities. Where am I going to live? How am I going to get out of the house? What can I take with me? Um, and when I get there, how am I going to manage this life? You know, I had a career and two small children. Um, and, of course, I had to keep that all secret because I worked in the police force. So, Really? So you could you weren't able to tell work what was happening because he, he was also part of the AFP? Correct. Yeah. Right. So it was um any implication of that sort of behavior on his part would have ramifications on yeah. his career as well. And um, you know, it's it's very, very complex. Um, even now I'm struggling to find the right words to put around it. It's it's a complex dynamic. Um, and was, he, was he ever remorseful for doing what he did? Did he ever own up to the fact no. that he actually never? No, no. And, you know, look, he was, um, a, he was, I still think, an alcoholic and he was back then. Um, and, you know, there's never any excuse for that behaviour. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, though, Michelle, I married someone that I that I didn't really love in the way that I should have. Yeah. And I couldn't, I got to a point where I couldn't hide that anymore. Um, and so I take my share of ownership in terms of the failure of the marriage, but I don't take any ownership of, of the violence because... Um, no, of course not. Because my view is people deal with that stuff all the time without the violence. Um, yeah. And so, but there was never any sense of ownership. There was never any, um, and which which staggers me, right, because it's only he and I in the, in, involved in the situation. There's only the two of the two of us. So we both know what happened, Um yeah, but there there was never any admission or um, remorse. And yeah, that see, I I would think that that would be so hard to then move on because in order to have closure, you probably want that person to own up to the fact that what they did was so wrong. But when someone doesn't would you say that there's that part of you that feels well he hasn't admitted to what he's done so how do you move forward in that sense yeah look definitely um but i've had to i guess um the way i have resolved it with myself is i just i just had to 
I guess, park it for want of a better word and, and put it in a box and say, this happened to me. And, um, at one point knowing I would have to have that difficult conversation with my daughters, um, and I guess the person that he is, um, he, he, he's unable to admit it to himself or to anybody else for that matter. Um, so it's not something that can be resolved and it is unresolved, I guess, for me in, in a lot of ways. And it's, um, it triggers a lot of emotions in me. Um, but it's, it's part of my makeup now, I guess. It's part of what's made me who I am. Yeah. And have you actually told your daughters now that they're teenagers what happened, why the, the marriage failed? Yeah, I have. And it was only um, probably a year ago. So my youngest is 16 now. My oldest is nearly 18. Yeah. Um, and I haven't told them the details because that's not something no. that they need to hear. But I have told them that that domestic violence was part of the marriage and it did play a role in the marriage and it is the reason, the main reason in the end that I left. Yeah. Um, and how did they react to that? Well, you know, um, horrified. Um, as girls, you know, you've got two girls yourself, they're very empowered. Girls are very empowered now and very, mm. very much about um, how they expect to be treated in the world and I think that's a great thing. Um, for me, I had the conversation with them in terms of um, uh, warning signs, I guess, and also understanding that, you know, your self-esteem plays such a large part in your life choices. Um, and so I've always been really conscious to raise them with a really strong sense of self and um, and a very high level of self-esteem. That's beautiful. And also the, the silver lining is the fact that you did go on to to meet a wonderful man that you said is you found the love of your life. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that situation. I did. Look, you know, that was something that um, obviously I wasn't looking for and um, in a lot of ways I felt that I wasn't ready for either, but it just happened um, we, we met and you know, I sort of describe it and it's a bit corny, but it, it felt like coming home to me. I felt like I finally, I remember one day thinking to myself, this is what it's supposed to be like. And I'd never experienced that before. This is actually what it feels like to be with someone who is comfortable in their own skin, has an amazing sense of self and, um, you know, there's 10 years between us. Um, he has three children that are a fair bit older than mine. And so I think if we'd met at any other point in our lives, we pro it probably wouldn't have worked. I think we both met at a time when we were both ready. And he had been a bachelor for nine years. Um, oh, long time. Long time. Um, and so, yeah, some of his furniture choices, as you could imagine. Does he have a floral lounge? He had a, he had a check. A checked, a tartan checked. Oh, nice. <laughs> Hideous. <laughs> Hideous. But you know what, Lise? The fact that he was a bachelor for nine years, he had a long time to work on himself. Yeah. So to actually reevaluate what he really wanted, um, his sense of, of purpose and self. And I think you probably met him at an amazing time because he was ready to devote his time to you and, and obviously to your girls. Yeah. Which has, you know, been a beautiful coming together. And, and now you have the family and you have the, the home yeah. that you always wanted. And yeah. I'm so happy for you that you found that. Yeah. But I know even if you hadn't, I think you're the type of person that you still would have made a wonderful life for yourself on your own with your girls. Yeah, we, you know, we would have, we would have managed and we did, we did manage, you know, my mum was a huge part in that. Um, I relied heavily on her when I, when I first, um, when I left my husband, my first husband. Um, but I think a combination of her support and, you know, my career um, and having, having the two girls, I would have managed, of course I would have. Um, but 
he just came along. And, you know, it was a big thing for him to to be with someone who had a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old mm-hmm. um, and his three children were in high school. So in a lot of ways he was starting again. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, he's an amazing father for both of them. Wow. That, that's such a beautiful Beautiful thing that has happened. And do the girls still have a relationship with their father? Uh, yes, they do. They see him. So he was de- he he requested to be deployed overseas uh, probably about five months after we after I left. and um he he then embarked on was about nine years of overseas deployments. Um, so he was absent for a large part of their childhood. Yeah. Um, and they do have a relationship with him now. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't call them close. Um, I, I think when you, when you miss out on such a large portion of your children's life, it's very hard then to reconnect in the ways that are meaningful, especially for girls. Yeah, of course. Cause the relationship with the father is a very important one, especially through adolescence. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, you know, obviously they they found a father figure in, you know, your husband. So that's amazing. He is. He's wonderful. Don't tell him I said that, though. I won't. I can't wait to meet him. (laughs) (laughs) But um, with your successful career in the AFP has brought a lot of rewards and challenges Mm. and also having to deal with PTSD. So there was a period when you took a break from the force, which I was shocked, and you decided to do something completely different but then after a while you thought no I I need to go back to that so like why what was the decision to leave and and then to return look I think I'd had when I left the AFP I'd had 24 years there um and initially you know I did I did have PTSD but it wasn't PTSD was never it wasn't a word. It wasn't a thing that we understood or even could could put a dialogue around um, back in the nineties. It wasn't. Um, yeah. So so I'd been through you know some quite traumatic experiences, particularly um, in East Timor. I was deployed over there, and part of part of my role there involved um, mass grave exhumations from oh God. yeah from mass murders that had occurred you know before the the referendum happened and. Yeah. Um, then I came back. I came back, and part of my part of my role here, one of my um, the areas I worked in was child exploitation. Um, oh, that must have been horrendous. Look, it was, and it. it I, I have to say, I've never done it anymore. I've never done more rewarding work than um, working in that area. It's there's a very high sense of purpose, um, but working working overseas with children that have been exploited and um viewing child abuse material on online um it has a profound effect on i guess your view of humanity and the things that people are capable of um and having two daughters as well for me um you know i think i mentioned to you the other day on the phone there was a point where i couldn't even bath my own children yeah. um because I was so sensitised to um, children being abused. Um, And so all of those things sort of had accumulated um, and I took a break um, from the AFP and, look, you know, and I was desperate to be that person that walked away from my career and did something completely different and um, never, never looked back. And I, I went to work in um, an antique shop of all places. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't picture you doing something like that. But it, hey. it was crazy. And um, I was desperate to love it. I was desperate yeah. to be the person who, oh, I found my happy place. And and I did. Look, I was there for a year. I loved it. I, it, it was fun. But I wasn't challenged. Um and there was something in my brain that um, needed more. Um, and so I was then left with a choice of do I go back to the AFP in that environment? Um, and I remember speaking to a psychologist at the time and she said to me, you know, 
PTSD is like um, a scar. She says, you know, you have injuries or an illness, um, the injury goes away, the scar remains. Um, and the scar is is tissue that is never is never quite as robust as the rest of the tissue on your body that you have. And um, if you go back into a, an environment where there's a chance that you're going to rupture that scar, um, you're going to have to deal with all of all of your um, issues again. And so, you know, it sort of stuck with me that, and um, I ended up going back to an intelligence agency instead where I felt like I could still contribute to things like national security, um, but I could do it from a distance. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? I did that for five years um, and I've just at the start of this year started a new position uh, with the Chief Minister's Department here in Canberra. So um, so it looks like you you landed back into something that you feel passionate about and it gives you a sense of purpose. But obviously by by leaving, that was the only way you were going to understand that about yourself, that personal professional growth. Yeah, exactly. And um, I thought I was ready at, you know, at however old I was, 45, um, to, to step out. Um, but what I what I should what I didn't realize was I needed to be out of that particular environment. Um, I still I still need I guess the challenges and the stimulation that comes with um, with a job that puts pressure on me. Um, it's yeah. just my makeup. I think it's just who I am. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's true, and it's really essentially whatever works for you. Um, I think we get fed the narrative of. You know, you don't have to be this way. You can be essentially yourself. And then we get mixed up and we think, oh, well, maybe what I'm doing doesn't serve me anymore, so I should do something else. But like yourself, obviously it did serve you. It gave you that sense of purpose. And and the fact that you're helping people, I get that from you. You know, that that must be a big part of what you do. Um, So, yeah, it's great that, you know, you did take that break to work it out and, I think that's what being your second act is all about. Sometimes just change it up. Yeah. See, you know, see what happens, where it takes you. But if you if you hadn't have left, I wonder how different you would be today. Yeah. I think I'd be I think I'd be substantially different. I don't I don't know that I'd be happy. I think you know there's In, in in careers like policing, there's um, there's a there is a stigma still attached to things like PTSD. It is it is recognised, it is understood, um, but it I think it would have limited um, some of the avenues open to me um, in as for a career, if that makes sense, um, yeah. and. I still, even though, you know, I could have done roles where I wasn't exposed to um, things that triggered me, you're still working in an environment where you're hearing and seeing things every day. Um, and there's, there's of course, secondary um, exposure that happens. Um, but, you know, I, removing myself and doing what I do now, I have to be in a job where I can tie a sense of value to what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I feel like I'm I'm still doing that, but just in a different way. So obviously you said, you know, you're in an environment where you are still coming across it and you're hearing about it. Mm. And when you get triggered, how do you help yourself? Like, what do you do? Look, I'd like to say that I have all these great strategies, <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I really don't. Um, you know, I know... Um, you know, a big trigger for me was losing my mum, and that that really triggered a lot of um, a, a lot of my PTSD, particularly around with the issues I have around dealing with death. And um, you know, my my strategy at that time was my daughters used to used to call it my drinking chair and my crying chair. 
I know. I know. I'd sit yeah. in the front, I'd sit in my front room in an armchair with a bottle of red wine and I'd just cry, you know. Um and even to this day they say, Oh, you, you know, don't sit in your crying chair, Mum, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know that I have any really great strategies. The best I, I think the best strategy that I do have is acknowledging that it that it is a thing for me. Yeah. Um acknowledging that um certain things will trigger certain responses in me and I just need to be aware of it um and I might when I when I am feeling triggered I might have a few days where I sort of go into my cave for want of a better word and I I become a bit quiet and and reflective um it's part of my makeup now it's it's not something that I will ever be rid of but it's just learning to learning to live with it and manage it yeah. No, I, and and you know recognizing it. That's the main thing, isn't yeah. it? Um yeah. So I I can only imagine what that must be like. It's such a big part of your life as well. So you're around it all the time. Mm. So to separate yourself, yeah, it, it must be it must be tough, but you must do some things personally for yourself like you know, um, are you into n- walking into nature or meditation? Can you imagine? I don't know. I can't imagine you doing that, but maybe are you? Can you imagine me, Mother Earth, walking into nature? No, no I wanted to ask that question. But <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, Lisa, I, for yourself? Look, to be honest, I don't. You know, I mean, I do. I do walk. I walk the dogs. I I get out. Um, for me, it's sometimes it's just even just getting out and sitting in the sun. Um, I I spend, you know, with teenage girls, you're you're either driving them places or dealing with issues or um, or and working full time as well. I have very little time still to do a lot of the things, and that's what I'm hoping my second act is going to bring me is that time to um, to spend. Um, doing things that I love and for you know sure. I love being I love being near the beach but at the moment that's not an option for us so yeah. I'm hoping that at some point we'll be able to to do those sort of things I mean my husband's retiring at the end of next year um, and as much as I think that's going to be great I'm also terrified that he's going to drive me nuts yeah um, everyone says that yeah. You might be hanging around the house saying, oh, now what? Yeah. Do, you, do you think that will make you want to retire yourself? Um, if I hadn't have just had this recent um, break, um, yeah. I probably would have said yes. I feel like I've got another, I, I plan to work probably for another four or five years. Okay. Um, you know, things can change, I guess, but um I still have a daughter. My youngest is um, is still in high school. She's she's only in year ten, and and she was diagnosed with high functioning autism. So, um, quite late, um, you know, for a girl, she was thirteen. So that's something that we still deal with, and that takes a lot of my time. Is is um, as a sixteen year old, she takes more more of my time than traditionally, I suppose, someone who's not on the spectrum would take. Yeah, of course. And I was going to ask you about your teenage girls and and mm. this phase. I mean, how how are you dealing with the fact that you have teenagers and their perspective on topics like non-binary identities? I mean, how do you how do you deal with all that? Because I find that we have to be extremely woke today. Yeah. Look, I my husband once put it. We were talking about technology once, and and. And he once said to me, and it's kind of stuck with me, that that our children are, are, are natives in the world of technology and we're immigrants, you know. Yeah, I like that. That's yeah. true. They were born into this world and yeah. we are transitioning into it. We weren't born into it. And I, I think it's the same with issues um, or, or matters like non-binary. My, my eldest, um, her best friend is non-binary and... Um, it's not even the language is difficult for me to to navigate. Um, referring to her best friend as a they them, yeah, and it's difficult for me because grammatically it feels wrong. <laughs> you know, 
I'm talking but about. You can't say it, can you? You, you no, don't say. You cannot. You no. cannot say it. And and yeah. you know, but my view is just because it doesn't come naturally to me, doesn't mean that it isn't important and that I shouldn't um, I shouldn't try. And you know, I have to be very conscious about my language. Um, and you know, they will pick me up quick, smart if I've if yeah. I've said if I've said the wrong thing or I've. I've referred to my daughter's friend as a she instead of a they, them. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think our daughters have a freedom um, that and, and support networks that we never had at their age. Yeah. Um, because I'm sure that we went to school with, with other children that had and other teenagers that had mental health issues and questioned their sexuality and, but they were never in an environment that supported them having that conversation. Yeah. I find this generation a, a lot more accepting of anything and anything really goes, which I think is beautiful because it's it's all about being inclusive. Yeah. We weren't raised that way. So like you said, it, it's it's trying to have that understanding and get your head around it because we can easily say, oh, that's strange or I don't agree, but it is the new way and, um, yeah. you know, I, I think, yeah, I'm a little bit like you. I don't always understand and I may, may not agree but this is the new way of the world and if that's what makes people essentially happy, then who are we to judge them? Yeah, look, and, I mean, having my daughters and having these conversations, um, you know, even just around the dinner table has helped me tremendously in my mm. professional life yeah. Because, um, you know, I now, you know, I'm one of the older people in the workforce and, <laughs> you know, I, I have um, part of part of my remit at the moment is I have um, a large cohort of graduates. So the the conversations that they have and the the expectations that they have, I'm more able to understand those because yeah. of the conversations I have with my girls. Yeah, of course. No, that's. That's so true and it's amazing, isn't it? Because And we're learning so much from them. Absolutely. As much as we think we're the ones that have to teach them, I'm definitely learning way more. And I just think they're emotionally a lot more mature than what I was at their age. They just, I don't know, I, I think it's probably the fact that we live in the world of the internet that, you know, any information is at your fingertips. Yeah. And they have got such a huge source of knowledge that, I think it's amazing. I I would have loved to have been able to have social social media, TikTok, all of that. I I probably would have abused it, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's um it's amazing. You know, as much as people say it, there's a downside to it, but actually, the the stuff that they learn, the mm. conversations that we have for young people, I think without it, they wouldn't really have that knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I agree that it's it's amazing. I think that, you know, it comes with a sense of pressure as well that we never had as yeah. as teenagers. You know, I know that, you know, things like bullying in schools and, you know, we if we were ever having a hard time at school, in, particularly in high school, we could come home and we yeah. would be free from that for 24 hours until we went back to school, you know. But now... Um, it's it's continued um, through social media, and um, that's a, the negative. It is a negative, yeah. And I guess the you know the whole Instagram, TikTok thing. Um, you know, I, I remember I said to you when I when I worked in the antique shop. Oh my goodness! Um, I set up. They wanted me to set up an Instagram account so I could post things from the shop and. I found it exhausting. Yeah. You know, always having to take photos and post them and find things that are going to be relevant to other people and um it's it took up so much of my time and I mean some people are great at it and I follow people on Instagram because I just like looking at the pictures. Yeah. Um but there's an inherent danger in that too in that we we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people now because there's always other people um in our faces. Yeah, doing it better or seemingly doing it better. Yeah. And and it's the FOMO. And that that was the thing I did I don't like about social media. Oh. And especially with 
the young generation and how, I mean, my girls have been in tears about different things because they weren't invited to something or someone had said something about them. And yeah, Mm. stuff like that, definitely, it can be really crushing to a younger person and probably a person of our generation as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can't even watch a movie now without Googling everyone. Everyone that's in it and how old are they? No. And where they? Oh, I yeah. thought I was the only idiot that did that. No. I do that all the time. <laughs> and then I realise I've missed half the movie, so I'll have yeah. to rewind it because I've gone <laughs> down some rabbit hole of looking at someone's life, you know. Um, and I think particularly as women in our 50s, um, I, there's still, a, it's particularly on social media, there's still a pervasive sense of, I guess, pessimism when it comes to the mainstream narrative on women and ageing. You know, all of these anti-ageing creams, um, I I find, you know, they're they're all advertised and so you'll you'll go down this rabbit hole of of what this new anti-ageing cream will do and why do we need that? Why do we it's almost like it's an antibacterial. We we don't want germs, so we have an antibacterial. And we're almost saying, well, we don't want aging either. So let's make an anti-aging cream. And um it's just it's just reiterates this negative perception of of aging. And they don't do it for men. Nope. They do not. It's they, always focused at the female yep. and, in, and, that, and the pressure that brings. And that's why I think also what I am seeing on social media is there's a shift and there are women who are coming out and saying, hey, I'm 70 mm. and I look my age and I'm happy that this is my 70. And I think, yes, great. Let's just embrace that. Let's celebrate the fact that we're getting older. It's not mm. about, you know, doing this to our skin. I mean, it's it's however you want to look after yourself yep. is fine. And, and don't compare yourself to someone that might not, that might have a lot of lines at the age of 40 compared to someone at 70 who doesn't have as many lines. It's like just be comfortable in your own skin. And honestly, that's all that really matters. And all this anti-aging bullshit, it doesn't even work. All those creams no. are just crap. They're just trying to sell it. So They, they don't work. Them. I've tried them. They don't yeah. work. <laughs> you know? Oh, they don't. And why? And if they did, they wouldn't be selling it for the little amount that you can buy it in a supermarket like L'Oreal and all those brands. No, it'd be worth a fortune. So yeah. it's all a load of crap. Yeah. But, yes, we do. And, we get sucked into it. And just the message that it sends that ageing is, is a negative thing um, and yeah. we need to, you know, I think and we've still got a long way to go, I think, in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a certain significance that's attached to men aging. Um, you know, it signifies their experience and knowledge. Um, yeah. But this, this isn't attached to women yet. No. Unless, and- unless they're, you know, in the public life, there's a few women that are, that are in the public eye. That, But apart from that, in the everyday workplace and the everyday environment, the, the significance and the experience that, and the wisdom that's attached to aging men is not attached to women. Um, no, absolutely not. And what was I? I listened to something the other day where this woman said, "When a man's hair turns grey, they're looked at as, oh, he's so dapper. He's, you know, that's mm-hmm. a man that is, you know, really embracing his age and he looks wise. But if we let our hair grow grey," mm-hmm then the connotation is completely different. Yeah, we're letting ourselves go. We've given up. She's old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's old. Yeah. You know, that's not attractive. And now a lot of women are saying, well, stuff that because they're embracing going grey really young because they no longer want to colour their hair every Mm -hmm. fortnight, month. Um, And they just feel that, you know what, this is me and I feel really attractive and I think go you. Do whatever you want. Who cares at the end of the day? That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I'll go, you know, and I think when, you know, when when we talk about the freeness that comes with with being, you know, in our middle age, I'm quite happy to go down to the supermarket with no makeup, hair that hasn't been washed in three weeks. Um, you know, I don't care. I never would have done that as a younger woman. Never. Um I don't wear makeup 
as much as I used to wear it in my my younger years. Like I can the only time I will wear makeup is if I go to work. Yeah. But apart from that, you will never see me with makeup on my face. And I don't care, honestly. I look when I get dressed up and I make an effort, I think, yeah, Michelle, you do. You look better. Yeah. But <laughs> I just find it's a lot of work every day. So if if I don't have to, I don't. And yeah. actually what I find is when I do go out and make an effort, I like doing it. It's more fun for me than a chore of every single day. Yeah. It's, I can't be bothered. No, no. And I, I think it's also about, you know, understanding that the face we present to the world is, it's it's just exactly that. It's a face. Um, there's a lot. We're, we're much more complex and, um, you know, there's a lot more depth to us as, as women in our 50s than there was as women in our 20s. Um, yeah. And we're okay that externally, you know, it's it's not as pleasing to the eye according to some social norms, you know. I think there's still relevancy tied to our attract- attractiveness now. Um, you know, we've, we've got a long way to go in yeah, that regard. Um, but I, I, I really feel that it will shift, you know, by the time our women are our daughters are our age, I think it will have substantially mm. shifted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's important that we have these conversations just to let other women of our age group have that understanding that it's okay, you know, you're not on your own. And yeah. and I think a lot of women do feel quite sheltered from that. So it's good that there is definitely a shift and there is a movement. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it all the time on social media and it's just empowering and, and that's how I feel now. I just, you know, when I turned 50, I thought, wow, that sounds old, but actually, no. I thought, no, it's not. You know, it, I'm actually excited about this coming decade and, I and you know, I'm three years into it and I'm loving it. Yeah. So, you know, here's to the rest of the decade, I'd say. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it also it's given me a, a, a sense of, urgency I guess in terms of the things that I still there's so much that I still want to do um and that I'm looking forward to doing if you're allowed to say it without children yeah of course you are allowed to say you've dedicated so much of your life to their life and because you chose to do that obviously you chose to have them but you know we owe it to ourselves now that we can now start doing things for ourselves. And I'm already in that phase because my children are a little bit older than yours, that it's just that sense of freedom that I have. I love it. Yeah. And they love me. They love watching me do things for myself. They've yeah. said that to me. Yeah. Because I've all, I was always there. And now it's like, oh, mum, what are you doing? I said, oh, like tonight I'm going out with a couple of friends for dinner that I haven't seen for a while. So yep. they're like, okay, cool, we'll, we'll get our own dinner. I love that. I never yeah. thought that was even possible. No, because you really do as a mother. There's there's a large chunk of that time that you lose your sense of self completely. And yeah. I'm still, I'm not quite there yet where I've got it back. You know, I'm still um, yeah, I'm still in that, a little bit in that area of, you know, I have days where I'm like, well, bloody hell, what about me? Yeah. What about what I want to do? You know, so... That's what I'm looking forward to, I think, is just being able to go, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, um, and and know that, you know, my girls are out there living their lives, which is what we what we want for them, what we've raised them to do is to get out there and and do their thing. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> and, you know, and mothering has been the most rewarding but the hardest thing I have ever done and I feel so blessed that I was I've been able to do that but yeah I feel like now I can breathe I can think about me a little bit more and that's just giving me some joy and some purpose to what's to come so yeah yeah exactly um you know it's it is hard and there's you know everyone says there's no book you know but there bloody should be by now. 
I know. It should be. Well, no, it, it was never in the bloody brochure that I read when I was pregnant thinking, you know, life was going to be Disneyland. No. It's like, oh, that wasn't in the brochure. And that no. wasn't in the- <laughs> there, should be a, there should be a brochure, a book, a podcast, <laughs> a whole website with all of oh. the answers. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there is now, definitely, compared to when we had our girls. But um, Yeah, true, true. Who knows? Well, Lise, I have so loved, loved having this conversation with you. You know, you're a very old friend and obviously there were a few years there in the middle that we, you know, we kind of lost touch, but it's been wonderful to hear, you know, how your life has evolved. So I always like to end the episode with, you fill the blanks, life is too short. Wow, life is too short. Um, Oh God! I should have prepared something for this, shouldn't I? (laughs) I full stop. Life is too short. It's just too short. It's just full stop. Too short. Um, you know, I. I, It's too. I guess too short. I don't know, Michelle. You've put me on the spot now. Um, (laughs) You're not going to believe this, but um, as you know, I said to you (laughs) at the beginning before we started recording that my dog is going to be around me. So I've got some treats. So he has been super quiet through this whole episode. And I've just in my head, he got two toilet rolls. He has shred them to bits. It's all over my carpet. I have a sea of toilet paper to go and clean up. Oh my God. Like full toilet rolls, not just the cardboard. No, no. He has gone and got two full toilet toilet rolls. Bless him. He's living no. his best life. <laughs> he's no, so I, I just said I have freedom. No, I don't. Yeah. What were you thinking getting a puppy? <laughs> what was I thinking? You needed an old dog, an old tired dog that just is going <laughs> to sleep all day. I had one, but he left us, unfortunately. Oh, I know. Now we've got this one. But anyway, anyway, back to what we were saying. Um yeah, you're right. Life's too short. Live it. Yeah. And just just try and get out there and do whatever. Gosh. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, Stop just holding yourself back. Yeah. Just don't be angry and cross and just. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Life's too short, full stop, you know. <laughs> well, thank you, my love, and all the best for your second act. Thanks, darling. It was great talking to you. I'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of Your Second Act. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Instagram for more content and updates.